this weekend there was a celebration of righteousness. Continues to be, as we just had this morning, continues to be a celebration of righteousness in our country. In a country that has all but abandoned any notion of right and wrong. Isn't it a mercy from God to our country that people bent on not doing what's right before God still sometimes do what's right? Our country, and lest we are guilty of assuming that the problems are all out there, our country and ourselves are a mixture of right and wrong, a mixture of good and evil. I love how John Steinbeck talks about this in his novel, East of Eden. Steinbeck says, A child may ask, what is the world's story about? And a grown man or woman may wonder, what way will the world go? How does it end? And while we're at it, what's the story about? Then Steinbeck says, I believe that there is one story in the world, and only one, that has frightened and inspired us. Humans are caught in their lives, in their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, in their avarice and cruelty, and in their kindness and generosity too, in a net of good and evil. I think this is the only story we have, and that it occurs, occurs on all levels of feeling and intelligence. There is no other story. And then he says this, a man, after he has brushed off the dust of his life, will have left only the hard, clean questions. Was it good or was it evil? Have I done well or ill? End quote. Steinbeck is saying that as we come to the end of our lives, um, we realize that the only thing that matters is whether we lived a righteous or evil life. And I think he's right in the sense that we all want to know if our lives meant something, if our lives stood for something. I think he's right that we're all caught, I love the, the phrase, the picture of we're all caught in a net of good and evil, that our lives are tangled up with good and evil, that our lives are a mixture of things we're proud of and things we're not proud of. I think he's right about that. But while he's right on some of these things, he could lead us to think that at the end of our lives, before we die, that it turns out to be our opinion of ourselves that really matters in the end. We might read him as saying, if we think we're good, then we were good. And things will go well for us when we enter the next life. But this is flawed logic and unbiblical. You see, if we can decide if our life was good or evil, and if our decision is the decisive one for how we will spend eternity after we die, then we're putting, uh, excuse me, we're going to convince ourselves that our life was good. This is why when we're sharing the gospel, you've probably had this response. You're asking someone, you know, whether they think they're going to go to heaven or if they're right with God or however you might say it, and almost without fail, someone will say something along the lines of, I'm a pretty good person. 
I'm basically good. You see, if it were up to us, then we're all going to convince ourselves that our life was basically good. We're going to be self-righteous and justify our evil actions any way that we can. We aren't going to remember all the things we've done to hurt people. We might even assume that those things were done in the name of righteousness or a just cause. We have a cancer of self-righteousness. We all assume that we are better than we are. And we all assume that we are the standard by which God will judge us. So when someone says to us, I'm basically good, you might just simply ask, compared to who? Compared to who? Your mom or dad? Your spouse? Your friend? Your roommate? Your coworkers? You might be better than they are, some subjective sense. But if you were to compare yourself, friend, if you were to compare yourself to a holy God who's never thought, said, or done anything wrong, you're not going to be good enough to be in His presence. Self-righteousness is this cancer that plagues our world, our culture, our churches. One pastor said that Satan's true masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. Those who think they're right in themselves, the Pharisee, will never see their need to be made right by someone else. But those like the prostitute, those who know they have no righteousness in themselves, are actually in a prime position to receive the gift of righteousness from someone else, namely God. We're moving into Genesis chapter 15 this morning. If you have a Bible, find Genesis 15. And in Genesis 15, the very first part of this chapter, we're going to come to one of the most important verses in the Bible, a verse that will help us answer one of the most urgent questions that we all face, arguably the most urgent question we face. How can we be right with God? How can we be in a right relationship with God? Many today, many even sitting in churches today, maybe even this church, are assuming, you know, I've fought valiantly for life and the end of abortion. I've been a faithful church attender. I've given my time and treasure for Christ and others. Therefore, God will accept me. There may be some, even today, that are assuming that God will accept you because of what you've done. So again, this begs a very important question. Maybe you haven't thought about it in a while. Many in this room know the answer to this question, but I want you to consider it anyways. Here's the question. What do you have to do to be accepted by God? Friends, I can't think of a more important question. What do you have to do to be accepted by God? Think about this question for a moment. Come up with an answer right now in your head. Consider it quietly there just for a moment. What do you have to do to be right with God? You might even start by being honest and admitting to God even now in the quietness of your heart that you aren't right with God 
you know that. You've known that for a long time. I was sharing the gospel with someone just this week, and I loved the honesty. This person literally said, I'm not right with God. I know I'm not right with God. I was just like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's like slow pitch softball at that point, you know? Like, all right, let's go. Let's go. Gospel time. Here we go. Are you right with God? If so, why? What makes you sure of that? What makes you think that? We're going to come to some answers on this very important question as we get into Genesis 15. As we're moving through the narrative of Abraham's life, we need to keep the storyline of Genesis in perspective. We remember from Genesis 1, God creates a perfect world. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, bring, bringing sin and death into the world. Then Noah comes on the scene. Noah's a new Adam. But even in this new Adam, evil reigns in his heart. After Noah, the Tower of Babel happens, and we learn there that humanity was still forsaking God and still deserving of His judgment. The world continues to spiral downward into more and more evil. And yet, we come to Genesis 12, we learn that in mercy, God calls a man named Abram to be his instrument of blessing in a world suffocating under the curse of sin. I learned this week that in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the word curse is used five times. And then in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the promises to Abraham, the word blessing is used five times. Literally, author of Genesis, Moses, is trying to say, curse is happening, but here comes Abraham. And what's Abraham going to do? He's going to overturn the curse. Through Abraham and his offspring, the curse is going to be overturned. Blessing is coming with Abraham for the whole world. So Abraham shows up. He gets promises from God in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Last week in Genesis 14, we learned that he had great military victories. He was even blessed by this king, this priest king named Melchizedek. But then we come to chapter 15. In chapter 15, we learn that Abram is again struggling to believe the promises of God. I love the honesty of the Bible. I love that the Bible's earthy, that it's real, that it shows us how people really felt, <laughs> things they really thought and said. Abram, again, in chapter 15, is struggling. Like some of you today are struggling to believe the promises of God. Abram, in chapter 15, has doubts and despair and fear. And yet, God comes to him and he starts to make his promises even more official by enshrining them in a covenant with Abraham. Now, that's the end of chapter 15. We're not going to get to that part this week. That'll be next week. But that's the main event here in chapter 15. God enshrines His promises to Abraham with a covenant. More on that next week, but that's the main idea of this whole chapter. Abraham's struggling. God comes to him and enshrines these promises He's already made with a covenant. At the end of chapter 15, now, along the way, as we work through this chapter, and as we'll see this morning, we're going to come across this verse, as I mentioned, that is one of the most important verses in the Bible. It tells us how people, like Abram and like you, how people can be made right with God. Here's the main idea, really, of this whole chapter. So this is the main idea of this week's sermon and next week's sermon, because we're going to do chapter 15 in two weeks. Here's the main idea. People who believe the promises of God are made right with God, and brought into a covenant relationship with God. Let me say that again because I know you're dying to write that down. Here's the main point. 
of this chapter. People who believe the promises of God are made right with God and brought into a covenant relationship with God. People who believe the promises of God are made right with God and brought into a covenant relationship with God. Now, chapter 15 has two parts that really correspond to the two aspects of God's promises with Abram. The first six verses are about the promise of descendants. Uh, 7 through 21 are about the promise of land. So we're going to do 1 through 6 this morning, 7 through 21 next week. Promises of descendants and then promises, uh, promise of land. 15, 1 through 6 is our text for today where God comes and reaffirms His promise of descendants. But here's how we'll break down our text. 15, 1 through 6. Number 1, we'll see God comfort Abram in verse 1. Number 2, we'll see Abram complain to God in verses 2 through 3. And then thirdly, we'll see God confirm His promises to Abram in verses 4 through 6. So that's our agenda for this morning. We might break it down this way. God's comfort, Abram's complaint, and God's confirmation. God's comfort, Abram's complaint, God's confirmation. Number one, God comforts Abram. Chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, these things that had just happened with Melchizedek in the battles of chapter 14, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So God comes to Abram and he comforts him. He tells Abram not to be afraid. Then he gives him two reasons why he shouldn't be afraid. He says he'll protect him. and He says he'll reward him. So this command and these promises go back to chapter 14. Abram was likely wondering, hey, one of these four bad guys whose names I can't pronounce nearly as well as Nick did last week, so I'm not going to try, but he might be thinking, one of these four bad guys from the east going to come back? His fear of reprisal and retaliation was real for, for who knows how long. This likely was pretty soon after those battles. He's afraid. So God comes to him and says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. This language of shield in Psalms is the language of protection. What does a shield do? It protects you in battle. So the Lord is saying to Abram, I'll protect you. I'll protect you from any assault from your enemies. I'll stand between you and your enemies, Abram. So that their darts, their arrows, their swords and spears won't hit you, won't hurt you. I'll be your protection. Don't be afraid. But then he says, his reward will be very great. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now remember back in chapter 14 that Abram didn't take any of the spoils of war that were his by right. Look back up at 14 verse 22 through 24. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Abram wanted his wealth to come from the Lord, not the king of Sodom. So the Lord comes to him and he says, Okay, Abram, because of your faith in that moment, I'm going to compensate you. You didn't take the spoil, so I'm going to reward you. Your reward shall be very great. What kind of reward is he talking about? Is he saying he's going to make Abram rich? 
Well, he is rich and will be rich. But that's not the kind of reward he's referring to. The context tells us here immediately, the context shows us that the reward the Lord has in mind is offspring. Your reward shall be very great. Verse 2, what will you give me? Verse 3, you have given me no offspring. Then verse 5, your offspring will be as innumerable as the stars. So the reward the Lord has in mind is children. Your reward, Abram, will be very great because you didn't take the spoils of war, you will be reward, rewarded with offspring. So, uh, Psalms later in Psalm 127.3 says that children are a reward from the Lord. God's reward for Abram will be children. So the Lord promises him protection and He promises him reward. He promises him children. Now how does Abram respond to these promises from the Lord, these comforting words from the Lord. Number two, Abram complains. Number two, Abram complains. Verses two through three. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So Abram responds by complaining. His response is cynical in verse two. He questions the Lord's power to deliver on His promises because he's still childless. He brings up his current heir, Eliezer of Damascus, because he's convinced that God's promises will go to the grave with him. We should note, by the way, that having Eliezer as an heir isn't necessarily a faithless act by Abram. This would have been a customary act in the ancient Near East for someone without children. And we know back from chapter 11, verse 30, that Sarai, or Sarah, was barren from the very outset of this narrative. So Abram may have made arrangements with Eliezer before God called him. We don't know. So we don't have to assume that that's a faithless act, having this heir lined up to inherit his wealth. Nonetheless, Abram is cynical. He's saying to God, you talk of rewarding me? You talk of rewarding me? And he's literally saying, the only reward I have is childlessness. And then, verse 3, he becomes accusatory. Look at verse 3 again. Behold, you have given me no offspring. That word behold kind of means, now look. Do you ever talk to God that way? <laughs> I might advise against it. Now look here, God. It's your fault I don't have children. Do you see the finger pointing? Behold, look, God, it's you. Abram, like most people in the ancient Near East, believed that God opened or closed the womb. I think he's right about that. This is a belief we would do well to recover. This is the theological underpinning of why we care about abortion, by the way. If God creates life in a woman's womb, then that life has the right to live because God made it. This is a theological problem. Abortion is a theological problem, not a political one. So he says, God, this is your doing. Because you haven't provided me with an heir, I have to rely on this other guy. I have this other solution kind of lined up because of you. Look, Abram's exasperated. And let's be honest, wouldn't we feel similar to this? The Lord had made great promises about a great nation, but Abram doesn't even have one child. 
He doesn't even have one child. And God is talking about a great nation. He's disillusioned. He's in his 80s with no children. You might think, well, you know, things were different back then. Well, not really. He was in his 80s. People generally don't have children in their 80s. Amen? Bob and Linda, amen. <laughs> He's understandably disillusioned. This phrase in verse 2, you see where it says, I continue childless? This phrase literally is, I am one who is walking stripped. I am one walking stripped. The idea, the idea is of being laid bare. The idea is of being naked and without hope. The idea is one of despair and destitution. I am walking stripped. What do I have, God? I have nothing. You keep talking about promises of children and nations. I am stripped. Abram was coming off a of victory. Do you remember chapter 14? He defeats these kings and rescues Lot. Abram's coming off a of victory, but he still feels defeated. Man, have you ever been on edge even though things are going pretty well? And wondered what the heck's going on in my brain? Man, I love the Bible because it's so much like our lives. You're coming off something good, and yet something in you is just full of angst and despair, doubt and fear. We've all felt uncertain about the future. Even though the immediate past is full of evidences of God's care for us. And think of who Moses is originally writing to, by the way. Remember, Moses is writing this to the Israelites as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're on the banks of the Jordan River, waiting to go in. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They're on the brink of inheriting the promises of God. But like Abram, they're still waiting on those promises to materialize. They're not in there yet. Like Abram, they'd had some victories, but there was still no visible evidence of the fulfillment of God's promises. Wouldn't this be encouraging to read as an Israelite on the banks of the Jordan that the father of their faith had a similar experience? Israel's predicament was like that of their first father, like that of every generation of God's people. And every generation from Abram to you, the Lord says through Isaiah the prophet, wait on the Lord. Wait. 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 Abram had to wait. Israel had to wait. We have to wait. Wait. And doesn't most of our life feel like waiting? Have you ever thought about that? Does most of your life just feel like waiting for that next whatever? Doesn't it, doesn't it seem, doesn't it usually seem, at least to me, I might be wrong, but doesn't it seem that we're always kind of waiting to see what's just around that next corner? And we're freaking out because we don't know if that thing around the corner is good or bad. Seldom do we know exactly how things are going to go. The 
seldom do we know how things are going to go. Do you believe that? Yeah. Randomly, I was digging through an old journal this week, and I want to read you something from 2008. Um, Susie and I had been married about a month. I feel God calling me to lead, to preach, to pastor, but I'm not sure how to get there. I'm plagued by this question. In the last two months, I've left this church I was serving at, married Susie, been to Puerto Rico on a honeymoon, California for a friend's wedding, and preached at a preteen camp in southeast Texas. It sounds like a lot, but I've had a lot of free time on my hands lately to ponder what may be next in my life. Susie and I are just about settled into our apartment, and we have both finally found jobs to hold us over for a while. She started at Barnes & Noble Bookstore, and I start a landscaping business, start working at a landscaping business on Monday. I've planned for some time now to go to work for a parachurch organization called Next Worldwide Ministries, but I'm unsure if this is really what God wants for me and Susie. One of my friends has recently told me that he wants me to come up to the Northwest to help him lead a new ministry in their church, to train college students, to maybe teach some seminary classes on the side through an extension center of Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. This leads me all back to the main question, how do I best fulfill the calling that God has put in my life? All I know for sure right now is that I have a lot of work to do in order to be a better husband, that my walk with the Lord must become more consistent, that I'm interested in pursuing doctoral studies, read that as glutton for punishment, <laughs> that I'm called to preach and teach God's Word, and that I start work as a landscaper on Mondays. Man, I was a month into my marriage. I had no idea what was happening <laughs> in my life. I, everything felt like a question mark. And still does in some significant ways. Does that describe you at all? When you know that you're, there's a corner coming and you just can't, you want to know what's around that corner, but you don't know. And you can't know. There's no way to know what's around that corner. This sense of always waiting for what's around the corner, I would argue, is very normal. <laughs> very normal. So this morning, one of my goals is I want to normalize waiting. I want to normalize for you the idea of not knowing what's happening, what's going to happen. It's not unusual for us to be really concerned for what's coming around the corner. You see, our lives are more like a garden than a five-step program. The garden of our lives doesn't bear fruit as fast as we'd like it to. It has rocks and boulders in it. Sometimes there's too much sun. Sometimes there's too much rain. But God comes to us and He says, if we stay with Him, if we trust Him, if we obey Him, He'll cultivate this garden. He never says it'll be a fast process. Ever. It's not in the Bible. He never says it'll be a fast process. It will be slow. But He tells us that fruit can come as His Spirit works through His Word in the garden of our lives. Do you remember what Jesus says? Jesus says the kingdom of God 
is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and seeds sprout and grow. He knows not how. I love this verse. The kingdom of God is like a guy who throws seed out, he goes to bed, and things happen and he has no idea how. <laughs> he has no idea. Jonathan Lehman put it this way this week. The most important stuff in our Christian lives and ministry is the under-the-radar screen stuff. The under-the-radar screen stuff. So while we might not know what's right around the corner, there are some things we do know. Some things we know very clearly. Like, love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Take the posture of servant like Jesus. To pray unceasingly. To give thanks in all circumstances. And on and on I could go. As we do these things, these things that are clear for us in the Bible, as we scatter seed, as it were, the kingdom of God slowly, imperceptibly, supernaturally grows. Things happen. God is honored. And the garden of our lives starts to bear fruit. Brothers and sisters, Abram had to wait. Israel had to wait. You have to wait. But our waiting on the Lord shouldn't lead us to stagnation or despair. Our waiting is actually meant to create strength. Listen to Isaiah again. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is unbelievable. Those who wait on the Lord, what does it say? Those who wait on the Lord... That word means trust. Those who trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, those who do that will have renewed strength and surprising energy to keep going. Waiting on the Lord is normal and healthy and good for our souls. When we try to get ahead of the Lord, that's when we get into all kinds of problems. We try to do things our way instead of God's way. When we try to cultivate the garden of our life in worldly ways instead of God's ways, we'll find trouble. But as we wait for the Lord, Isaiah says we will find a renewed strength. Some of you know this. Some of you experienced this. Some of you have been in a moment, a season, <laughs> a year, a decade of despair. But for some odd reason, you didn't give up. You kept believing the gospel. You kept reading your Bible. You kept praying and going to church. And somehow, you made it through. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Abram waited. Israel waited. We have to wait. And this is good for our souls. So we've seen in our text in Genesis 15, we've seen God's comfort. We've seen Abram's complaint. Now third, thirdly, we'll see God's confirmation, the confirmation of His promises to Abram. So look with me at chapter 15, verses 4 through 6. 4 through 6. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, to Abram. This man, Eliezer, Eliezer of Damascus, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. So God responds to Abram's despair sympathetically, but without compromising the truth of his promises. He renews his promises about an innumerable, innumerable posterity. He makes this promise vivid by having Abram leave his tent, look out at the stars. The innumerable stars symbolize Abram's innumerable offspring. This illustration complements what God has already told him in chapter 13, verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. In other words, he's saying to Abram yet again, using a word picture of a vivid illustration, Abram, your offspring is going to be so great that it's going to fill the land from corner to corner. But again, put yourself in Abram's shoes. This promise even though it's repeated with more visual aids, certainly only increases the paradox for Abram. It's a grand promise with an amazing illustration, but it remains a promise. These blessings still haven't materialized. When Abram walks out of his tent that night, do you know who was in the tent? Only Sarah. No children. And he comes outside and God says, Hey Abram, look at the stars. You're going to have that, ma <laughs> that many children, so to speak. Your offspring's going to be this great. He's still childless, and he's old. How's he going to respond? How does, he, how does he respond to this stargazing? How does he respond to the Lord coming to him again, sympathetically, meeting him where he is? Well, verse 6 tells us exactly how he responds. Look at verse 6 again. This is... The verse I alluded to, one of the most important verses in the Bible. This is how struggling Abram responds to the promises of God. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram responded with faith. This isn't the first time, by the way, Abram demonstrated faith in God. He did so when he obeyed the Lord. Abram calls him to another land. God calls him to another land. Chapter 12, verse 1 3. Chapter 12, verse 4. Mason pointed this out. So Abram went. God said, do this. He did it. That's an act of faith. Chapter 13. He and Lot are having conflict. Their herdsmen are having conflict. He, in faith, says, Lot, you take what part of the land you want. I trust that God will still give me the promised land. You take what you want. This isn't the first time Abram's demonstrated faith. He's going to demonstrate it again over chapter 22 when he offers Isaac as a sacrifice in faith that God would raise him up. This word here, by the way, for believed, that he believed the Lord could be translating was, translated was believing, meaning there's an ongoing faith being repeated here yet again. This isn't the first time Abram believed God. As one scholar says, Genesis 15, 6 reports that Abram is still strapped into the roller coaster and hanging on to his right of faith. And again, isn't this indicative of our own lives? How many times does the Lord have to come to us and say, 
hey, I'm still here. My promises are still true. I still love you. I'm still for you. How many times has he done that? I think this is, by the way, one reason why we should come to church every single Sunday. Unless you're sick or out of town. Because every week we need, you don't need to hear me. You don't need to hear great singing, though that's wonderful. You need to hear God say in His Word again, I can be trusted. I'm with you. I want to bless you in Christ. My promises are true. Every single week we need our faith renewed. You don't come to church generally because you've never believed God before. You come to church because you have believed in God. And many of us, if we're really honest, we're coming because we're struggling to continue to believe in God. This is what the Lord's table is, by the way. The Lord's table, the Lord's supper is our way of coming together again at the foot of the cross and saying, we still believe in Christ and Him crucified for the forgiveness of sinners. We still believe this. The Lord's response to Abram's response there at the end of, end of the verse is just beautiful. He says, it was counted to him as righteousness. God counted it, that is his faith, he counted his faith or reckoned his faith to Abram as righteousness. Abram's trust in God's promises, despite facing naturally impossible odds, earns him the reward of righteousness. How can this be so? Abram trusting the promises of God, despite any physical evidence, earns him the Lord's righteousness. Why is this so? Well, I would argue because trusting God and not yourself is the essence of doing what is right. Trusting God and not ourselves is the essence of righteousness. Looking away from ourselves and looking to someone else and their character and their promises and believing it and hoping it and grabbing onto it and saying, I'm never going to let this go. Doing that is the essence of righteousness. We have to notice that right here, this text does not say that Abram's work for God gained him righteousness. No, it says his belief in God, his trust in God, his faith in God, not his work for God is what gained him righteous standing. Abram was a former pagan, a former idol worshiper. He was called by God. Then here he's justified by God because he had faith in the promises of God. In other words, the foundation for his right standing with God was his faith not his behavior. He didn't earn justification. He received it. Brothers and sisters, you cannot do anything to earn your standing before God. Can I just stop here for a minute and preach a little bit? Friends, you can't earn right standing with God. You're like, I'm pretty, you're like a pretty good per- you're a pretty good person. Great, I'm glad you're a good person. But you know what you aren't? You aren't God. You have a heart that even this morning has, and a mind that even this morning has looked upon someone else and considered yourself better than them. Even this morning you've done that. Probably many of you, if not most of you. You know? And I, that's, I'm pointing the finger at me too, right? One at you, four at me. So when we start saying, you know, I can be good, I can work myself into a right standing with God, that's just so illogical. And as I was sharing with a friend this week, 
Here's the good news, and it's so beautiful. All we have to do is stop looking at ourselves and look upon the righteousness of Christ as our only hope, and we'll be saved. You're like, John, I've got this thing I've got to clean up. I've got this thing in my marriage. I've got this thing at work. I've got all this stuff that's just pretty jacked up. Some of this stuff no one even knows about. Great. You need to be really honest about that. Take it to God. And if you look to God in faith, if you look to Christ in faith, confessing your sins to Him, admitting your sin to Him, trusting in Him and Him alone, guess what you get? His righteousness. This is an amazing gospel that if you will merely trust in Christ, Almighty God will declare you righteous even though you're unrighteous. We can never earn our righteousness. We only can receive it. The writers of the New Testament quote this verse several times to make the argument that we, like Abram, are made, made right with God through faith and faith alone. Paul says in Romans 4, as Sue read earlier, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Paul is saying, hey, what happened right here with Abram can happen with you. If you will look upon Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, you also will be counted righteous. Like Abram, the only way any of us can be made right with God is by trusting in the promises of God. The promise of the gospel is that everyone who turns away from their sin and puts their trust and hope in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of their sins and declared righteous in Christ. In other words, Abram's gift can be ours. The Bible says those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There's this line in a Rich Mullins song where he says, Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he had seen had been lit for me. Isn't that beautiful? I wonder, in a, in a sense, does one of the stars have your name tagged to it? Are you under the blessing of Abraham through faith in Christ? Are you a child of God through faith in the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ? Are you a man of faith? Are you a woman of faith? Are you an heir according to promise because you've believed the promises of God? Are you right with God? Do you have peace with God? Remember Steinbeck's words, a man after he has brushed off the dust of his life, will have left only the hard, clean questions. Was it good or was it evil? Maybe your life has been decently good. But I wonder, what will you tell God about the evil in your life? Do you think you have enough righteousness to gain entrance into the presence of God? Or are you looking outside yourself hoping in the righteousness of someone else. You see, as Paul said, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ 
becomes an heir of God, an heir of the promises, and becomes righteous. This is good news for people like us, even those of you who are saved. I know many of you are trusting Christ this morning. Praise the Lord. This is really good news because here's what I know to be true about you and me. Many of us don't feel very righteous most days, do we? That, that describes us on some days. And then on other days, we feel a little bit too righteous, don't we? This doctrine is meant to silence both of these voices in our heads. We have no righteousness, friends. We have none. Unless we have Christ. And if you have His, you have all the righteousness you need. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word and write it on our hearts. Help us to sift through these things and take from here the things we need to take. I pray, dear Lord, that you would help those who may be trusting in their own righteousness to come again, maybe for the first time, to the cross of Christ, remembering that Jesus died because they are sinners, that Jesus came for the sick, not the righteous. I pray that you would bring I pray that you would bring prodigal sons home this morning. Prodigal sons and prodigal daughters who have decided to live life on their own terms. I pray that you would show them that their righteousness is nothing and that their only hope is the righteousness of someone else. I pray that you would give them faith to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would increase those who have faith in Christ, increase our faith, increase our love, increase our hope. And may the righteousness of Christ start to work its way in and through and out of our lives so that when people see us, they see something of Christ. I pray in His name. Amen.